The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily Bloomberg iHeart podcast. And I'm Philip Lagerkranzer, senior editor for Bloomberg News, standing in for Stacey Marie Ishmael. It is Friday, February the 3rd. Well, January in the Northern Hemisphere can often feel like the longest month, but it's finally over. Surprising to some, it turned out to be a pretty good month for crypto. Bitcoin rose almost 40% and a lot of smaller coins actually did a lot better than that even. And speaking of risk-taking, Wall Street is still keen on crypto despite all of last year's calamities. And a failed crypto lender known for its risk appetite, Celsius, just got some pretty harsh words from its bankruptcy examiner. Here to help me break down the news is Bloomberg senior editor, Ana Herrera. These firms have very long horizons and it takes them very, very long to do things. So, you know, they might have made announcements a couple months ago during the rally, but they, they probably started working on things a few years ago. And Bloomberg reporter, Emily Nicole. We don't even know if there may be more collapses to come, but FTX was one of the biggest tests, I think, that crypto could have faced on that front. And so this week we had the Celsius Bankruptcy Examiner's report, and it was pretty scathing, I guess we can say. Emily, you covered that story. What was the gist of it? So this was the final report that the court-appointed examiner was doing into Celsius throughout its bankruptcy case. And um, unlike probably even some of the things that we've seen come from other bankruptcy cases so far, this one was was pretty damning, I guess you could say. What the examiner found was that a lot of what Celsius was doing to track its assets and liabilities was insufficient. It made misrepresentations to customers quite regularly about its financial health and then tried to cover up the tracks after it lied about it. Um, There was also a pretty evident picture of how for most of the time that Celsius was operating from about 2021 onwards, it was essentially insolvent because most of how it was propping itself up was through its own token, CEL, Cell. And even with Cell, some of its top executives like Alex Smashinsky, the former CEO, had been selling off really large amounts of Cell for their own personal gain, which was similarly then hitting the customers um, and balance sheet at the same time. And this was even as they spent, I think it was north of $500 million on buying the Cell token um, from the company account? The examiner report found that at least $558 million was spent buying its token. And Celsius was covering up from customers that much, like you know how much it was spending on that. And even out of that figure, 
while that was happening between 2018 and the time that Celsius filed for bankruptcy last year, um, Mashinsky made about 68 million on selling the token for himself, while another co-founder made at least almost 10, 10 million. So there was a lot to be made there. A lot of stuff going on. Is there anything in this report that you, either you, Emily, or Anna, see as, you know, speaking to the actual business model? Um, is it is it another testament that the business model of crypto lending and the investing or the, the sort of risk-taking that underpinned crypto lending as we knew it at least until 2022 was out of whack? What's interesting here, and, and I'm not sure how new this, this is, but obviously, and it's quite common for the lenders, was that they were attracting deposits by offering very high yields. Um, but what's interesting is that they were saying that the investments they were making or the, the loans were not high risk. And obviously, if you have any experience investing, you know that generally you get high yields when the risk is higher. And so the examiner noted that obviously that wasn't the case and that as they were trying to attract more deposits, the, investor, the investments got riskier and riskier. And Emily noted in her story how for a certain period in time, the loans were completely uncollateralized. And just to take a step back, basically, if, if anyone who's listening is unfamiliar, what what happens is, you know, you deposit like just like a bank, you would deposit your tokens with a with a crypto lender and they would give you yield by lending it out to someone else. Um, and what happened in crypto was that it's not it wasn't actually a bank. Your deposits were insured. And in many cases, they didn't have any risk management to make sure that they weren't just handing off your tokens to someone who would make very questionable bets on not great tokens. Um, and the report also noted this lack of risk management. I, I think they said until 2021, they did not have anyone in risk management, no written risk management procedures. And then they hired four people who had some stopgap measures, I think, um, were meant to cover holes until they were, would come up with more serious risk management procedures. Then they hired some more people. One person came up with some policies, but they were never implemented. I don't know the business model itself, but just in general, sort of how it was being portrayed to clients, that it was that was supposedly safe and that you were depositing your money in something that was like a bank and that it was going to be there when in fact it was being lent out to people who took risky bets, um, didn't have to post any collateral so that when, when those risky bets started backfiring, lenders like Celsius lost a lot of money and it wasn't their own money, it was their client's money. And Anna, I noted that you spoke about the kind of risk reward of equation and the concept of that there isn't really any free, free lunch, I guess, um, in finance. And, you know, it's a segue over to a sector that actually does probably, at least most of the time, understand risk-reward, and that's Wall Street. And you did a story together with some of our colleagues about Wall Street's sort of crypto ambitions as they stand now. And what did you guys find out? So anyone who's listening would imagine that with everything that's gone down in crypto, Wall Street would want to take a rain check or say, we don't want to have anything to do with it. In reality, some of the firms that had stepped in during the, the sort of crypto rally by saying they would start launching crypto custody or start offering crypto to some of their clients have said that, they're, that they'll continue with these plans. Uh, and in many cases, some of these banks see crypto not just as crypto in itself as what we see now. So, so you know, Bitcoin and Ether and these assets that are existing, but as an opportunity to tokenize existing assets. So stuff that they already trade like bonds, 
are other forms of securities. So it's a mix of firms trying to get in, in into actual, you know, crypto, so Bitcoin, and also to lay the foundation for a future which they believe will have, you know, normal asset tokenized. Um, and I, I think what's really interesting here is that, you know, many of them flagged how actually what's gone on in crypto gives them an opportunity to step in because with cases like FTX or you know other other instances in which customer assets were mixed with assets of the firm and you know sort of there was no risk management and customer assets are now gone it just shows that for investors it's it's sort of probably better to work with a regulated firm who has to follow certain rules one of which which is very basic is not mixing assets and keeping assets safe and custodied by a third party. There's a lot going on. And I guess, you know, another thing to point out is that these firms have very long horizons and it takes them very, very long to do things. So, you know, they might have made announcements a couple months ago during the rally, but they, they probably started working on things a few years ago. And so in some cases, they might not really be swayed by the crypto prices now. And they might be actually genuinely looking at doing things in the long term so that if another rally comes, they might actually make some money in fees from, from the trading and, and what happens. That being said, a big caveat is, you know, a lot of these firms say they do things because of client demand and that's what's driving them to, to launch new products. And now with crypto prices down, like, and so many investors haven't been hurt, you have to wonder, is this demand still there? At the same time, I mean, if you look at the banks, at least, to a certain extent, they're at least being held back by the regulations on them right now. I mean, for instance, they cannot hold crypto directly on their balance sheet. How do you think that is playing into the time horizons here and what impact Wall Street can actually have on crypto? That, that's definitely a, a big role. A lot of them have been wary because there weren't clear enough regulations. And as you mentioned, the balance sheet issue is, is sort of a, a risk issue. So, you know, post-crisis rules have made banks a lot safer. They've imposed that banks hold a lot more collateral for risky assets. And in many cases, banks believe, or in, in many countries, that, that assets like crypto would be classified as the riskiest assets. And so they'd have to hold a lot of collateral to hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet, which would make it sort of not really worth it, which is a reason why they've held back. So, you know, now we've, we're seeing a big regulatory push globally from regulators in all major jurisdictions to regulate uh, crypto more. That would bring more clarity and we can maybe think that it would help banks step in. But at the same time, you know, they might just think this is not really worth the headache at the moment. We'll be right back with more of the week's top crypto stories with Anna and Emily. And Emily, you've sort of come at this from a slightly more, I guess, crypto side. Do you, is it your impression that firms that are crypto native are in any way, shape or form concerned about, you know, the, the TradFi, as they call them, moving in on their turf right now? Or is it sort of like, no, they're too big, they're too slow, they're too hampered by regulation? How would you read the mood on that? I mean, there's always the idea that more competition is, is better for innovation, but also it means that you have to work harder as a company to draw in users. I think probably at the minute, though, volumes are so low in crypto that it's difficult for anyone to get users, TradFi or crypto native. It doesn't matter who you are. Um, there's obviously the elements that were mentioned about how 
if you're in like crypto companies don't have the best reputation right now and so maybe wall street has an edge there but wall street also can't offer what crypto offers i mean if we look at fidelity as a as a case example they can only really offer bitcoin and ethereum at the minute and they're not able to even offer you know the 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 top altcoins in the sector like solana or cardano because those aren't things that we really have regulatory clarity on we're still not sure for example in the us whether um, something is a security or a commodity and that makes things very difficult for wall street firms to really think about so crypto natives can can continue to keep that edge and when volumes are this low it's really in those smaller tokens actually where there's there's potentially money to be made for traders it's where they can get probably the best arbitrage opportunities and that's not something that big banks or wall street are anywhere close to offering at the minute Okay, let's pivot to regulation then, because the UK just came out with a proposal, I guess you can say, from a regulatory standpoint, at least bring crypto and TradFi sort of under the same roof. Huh? Emily, you did that story. What can you tell us about that and how significant does it look at this point? So the UK announced a consultation this week that will basically form the cornerstone of what will be the country's broadest set of crypto regulations. It's announced a couple of proposals last year under like specific areas like stable coins or how we can promote crypto assets in general advertising. Um, but this is this is the big one. Um, and most of what it goes through are things like how crypto exchanges should be regulated, transitioning away from a bit of a, a registration regime that the UK has a minute that just looks at anti-money laundering standards and how crypto companies en masse can just be treated like regular financial services companies. Um, there's some bits in there about how crypto exchanges should put in place requirements for tokens issuers when they want to list a new token. Um, there's also things like there should be stricter rules on custody, on crypto lenders, on intermediaries, basically everything that you could think of as an issue that's been thrown up in 2022 with all the bankruptcies and collapses and scandals we've had, the UK has tried to address in this one document. It's interesting that you mentioned that, Emily, because as I read this story, it's sort of like it was kind of check, 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 point by point, commingling. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 
5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Things like the stuff that came up again and again and again um, over 2022, it almost reads like either they anticipated this or they have been working very hard in the last couple of weeks and months to get this ready, huh? I mean, if yeah, they... it's, it's definitely the latter, right? So they yeah. they started announcing these kinds of things back in Jan- between January and April 2022. And it was all in the kind of slight aftermath of coming off of Bitcoin's peak, but crypto was still almost in its bull market to bear market transition mode. We hadn't yet had terror collapse or anything like that. And the UK wanted to be a global crypto hub. So these were all the kinds of like stepping stones paving the way for a big crypto framework that would make the, the UK this like haven for crypto companies. Um, then terror happened. And also the UK had its own kind of government chaos with multiple prime ministers and, and all the rest we won't name. Um, but what that did is it gave the country time to kind of step back, watch all this chaos unfold and really know how to get that framework in place properly so that it did address all those concerns. They've obviously picked now as the time to come out with that. And we don't even know if there may be more collapses to come. But FTX was one of the biggest tests, I think, that crypto could have faced on that front. And so making sure that exchanges is in here was a really big thing. Well, it certainly feels like 2022 served as a kind of blueprint for exactly how different things can go wrong in an industry. I mean, there might be more to come in a way, but part of me feels like we've seen so many things go wrong in so many different ways that, as you said, Emily, it would be somewhat surprising if regulators hadn't picked up on some of those. I want to finish today's episode with a little bit more of a sort of crypto-only and maybe more light-hearted topic. And that's NFTs are coming to the Bitcoin blockchain, which is not being received unequivocally happily, I guess you could say. Emily, you looked into that. What's happening there? Yes. So uh, my lovely colleague, David Pan, he wrote up the story on Monday. What we're looking at here is potentially a very big deal for Bitcoin because uh, Ethereum as a blockchain has been much faster and much more adaptable than its older counterpart. Um, Bitcoin for for all its good and worth, while still being one of the more valuable tokens, the blockchain itself hasn't been that useful. And Ethereum, meanwhile, has had NFTs and smart contracts and all the altcoins you could dream of. And so in the more recent years, Bitcoin has been undergoing some changes to try and make it so that the blockchain itself can be a little bit more adaptable in similar ways. And one big upgrade called Taproot did actually make it possible so that you could store images directly on the network itself. That's something that even Ethereum can't do. At the minute, an NFT on Ethereum lets you put in a link that will then point you to a web page where your image is, but the actual picture itself isn't on the chain. And with this change, um, a company called Ordinals said that they could put the actual picture on the blockchain. The reason why people aren't happy about that, though, is that it takes up a lot of space. And that's something that Bitcoin really can't afford at the minute, given how slow it is already compared to the rest. And if you're adding in massive transactions for NFTs where you're storing the whole picture on there and it takes up a ton of block space, that's just a massive, massive turnoff. And it created a bit of a debate, let's say. 
problems, problems, problems. All right. Thank you, Anna and Emily. This was Bloomberg senior editor for crypto, Anna Herrera, and Bloomberg reporter, Emily Nicole. You can find more of their reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal, on Bloomberg.com, and on Twitter. For more, be sure to check out our twice-weekly newsletter, Bloomberg Crypto. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments, questions, or suggestions for the show to crypto at Bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of Bloomberg Crypto is Vicky Vergolina. Our senior producer is Janet Babin. Our producers are Mohamed Farouk and Sharon Bariro. Our associate producers are Ty Butler and Moses Undam. Desta Wonderad is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidron. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael. Have a great weekend. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.